Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm joined today by Elisa Stanzo-Levine, and she is a decorative artist who is a single mother, and she built a business into a nationally recognized company with projects published in every major magazine in the U.S. Her new memoir, This or Something Better, takes an unflinching look at the early abuse she endured and its effect on her life. Elisa, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Hello, Corey. Thank you so much. Yes, well, it's our pleasure to have you here. And to dive right in, your new memoir, This or Something Better, as I mentioned, I am curious to know what inspired you to to write such a personal book? I must say, uh, I started thinking that I would be a writer and writing my story when I was eight. And at that point, and sort of a through line through the whole 72 years I've been alive, the idea was really just to share what happened to me and hope that it inspired other people, motivated others mainly to understand that they have a deep essence within them. And no matter what happens, that is still present and always will be present. And so carry the flag for this essence and be who you truly are deep inside. And so this trauma aspect that's in the book is really true for me and could be true for any number of people, different forms of it. But certainly, you know, we hear these words trust and, um, you know, individuation and intimacy, But in my experience, all these things I found in nature, but only, unfortunately, for me, in nature for the many, many years of my early life. And it wasn't until I had my son as a teen mother that I discovered what trust could look and feel like. And um, through that and his help, it really helped me evolve. But I must uh, also just suggest that coming through what you experience is a long process and it's magical and it can be really fascinating. It's almost kaleidoscopic. So when, if you are considering reviewing your life based on things that um, seem to be missing, don't lose heart, please. Mm-hmm. My, my theory uh, is that you can, you know, grow and change and evolve and deepen and get more close to your own source through study and caring for yourself. You know, so many people get stuck in a rut, obviously, when we have a situation, something negative, and we very much sort of define ourselves by the adversity that we've endured versus trying to get beyond it. And I know for you, you definitely had some very specific traumas that you had to get through. And um, as candidly or as quietly as you'd like to share, if you could explain a little bit of some of the the early, or maybe the main sort of prominent trauma that you experienced that really sort of set your life on a specific course? I think as a tiny child, I was, you know, corralled by my grandmother when she 
when we were staying there, it was many of cousins together, but she had chosen me to really take out her own angst. Apparently, of course, I'm now as a mature person, I'm discussing it, but as a tiny child, I'm the one, I'm it. She would get into a mood and then she would grab me up occasionally, not very randomly and put me in the wash tub and scrub me down and call me a murderer. Now I'm, you know, two years old, three years old, four years old. Finally, I'm five years old. And I say to her while we're alone, a rare occurrence, you know, why, grandma, do you call me a murderer? I'm just a little child. And she's looking, she's driving, look, driving the car ahead of me. And it just says, well, doesn't matter. You're a Catholic and Catholics killed millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people during the crusades. And it's just like you did it yourself. Mm. Now, I, you know, Corey, in 1953 or 55, whenever, uh, you know, there was, I had no knowledge of crusade, the crusades. So it just made no sense. Yeah. Um, and I had to just put that away. And I had already known, you know, I can't tell my father about my grandmother. I mean, she's God in his hierarchy, right? That's his, that's his mother. I can't tell on her. So I have no one to tell. Simultaneously, there was a other sexual abuse that was happening from her husband who was a step-grandfather who happened to be a pedophile you know again at five you don't know these words you don't know these things yeah. you don't know what's happening and so all that just con confused my whole early life but the saving grace from the very beginning was my first memory which was that i was alone outside another place i love to be alone outside mm -hmm. still um and i i suddenly realized that i'm on the planet i looked down i saw my shoes i knew those were my shoes i reached up to like welcome myself to the planet it's i swear it was just like this i don't even know what words i was thinking or feeling mm -hmm. but i realized i'm too little to even i have no words I'm just, and so I'm just a little child again. So I just like am gleeful and the trees are waving, the birds are flying. Everything is just welcoming me, right? So no matter what happens in any other case, I have nature and this connection and this sense of belonging that gives me this deep trust over there. Now, that doesn't fix everything, okay? So as time passed, there were other challenges and the challenges I kept trying to meet in my own way from whatever was close at hand. You know, I will go out running. I will do this. I will do that, you know, to solve it, but not ever understanding that I needed to deepen my own ability to trust humans. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just a question we all have to grapple with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do wonder when I hear you talk about your grandmother, do you think at that time she was dealing with, she was, that sounds like a mental illness to me. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but that doesn't right. sound like a, co like a coherent sort of situation for a grown woman and a child to be in, but it, it doesn't seem stable mentally when she would call you a murderer as a two-year-old. I mean, is, right. was that, yeah. was that part of the equation that you guys would find out later or no? Well, yes, and not exactly. No one ever accused her or diagnosed her uh, certainly. And she's, was highly regarded in the community, mm. very involved in her church, a different church, not a Catholic church, mm -hmm. and very, uh, just an incredible nurse. And she had done all these wonderful things and she had had extreme losses herself. Mm. De death, the tragic deaths of two children, death of two husbands that were just mm. horrific. Yeah. And she had survived all that. And she, you know, really was stalwart and, yeah, 
I admired very many things about her. Mm-hmm. But then there was this. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so in this narrative, you'll learn that we came to a great understanding, you know, and it all worked out. You know, ultimately, though, when you just mentioned what she had gone through, the traumas in her life, and they were unresolved, mm-hmm. which manifested into behaviors that were definitely not constructive there's a pattern I definitely see in certain conversations like these where unresolved traumas can manifest into all kinds of different behavioral problems. And in that case, that may have been abuse. In other cases, there um, there's abuse, a substance abuse issue of the person who has been victimized. And I know that you had dealt with some of that as well. And it was your son who helped you get through that. So share a little bit about how uh, you fell into that situation, I guess, as a coping mechanism and how your son saved your life. Yes. Um, So as I proceeded with my, you know, moving ahead and quickly getting my um, life in order with this as a single mother and working very hard and enjoying very much about it, I proceeded to have great success. And I sold 16 houses in six years that I was restoring with partners, one of whom was a husband that I had. Um, Then we got a divorce. And, and at the same time, the whole bottom fell out of this restoration idea. Of course, at 27, I did not know that it was a, a um, some kind of a, I don't even know what to call it exactly. I just thought I was had a winning formula and it, I wasn't speculating and yet BI, you right. know, I'm the one. But in fact, when all of all things went to 18 to 22% interest and no nothing could be sold as a, no home is going to be sold at that rate. Mm-hmm. It's just impossible. I lost everything. And it was so, so here I am now divorced. I have this son who's 12 and I had fallen in love with someone new and he was killed in a car accident. Okay. So a whole bunch of bad stuff all at one time. Yeah. And so I had already experimented with cocaine. It was in the late seventies and you know, I just started using it as a little crutch and then it just became this covering, this cloak I had to have to do what I thought I had to do to move forward. And this went on. And I, I mean, this whole situation of coping through a chemical, I just see as a very bad um, solution. And it arrested me in that spot of, you know, just denial. Right? Mm-hmm. And this denial went on for maybe three or four years. And it was really extreme. And um, it wasn't until uh, my son came in one day when he was 15. And it was 11 at night. And he said to me, he moved the newspaper that I had on the table. And he said, what's that? He pointed to this little folded up mm-hmm. packet. And so I had always said to myself, well, if anybody ever asks me, I have to tell them the truth, right? And then I'll quit. Okay, great. That's a great plan. Okay, so there I was. I had to say, and then I had to quit. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard, you know, but I realized that I had to do what I had to do in yeah. order to make it through. And, you know, I will say it took him many, I mean, maybe years to, if I get kind of all excited about something or something, he gives me the side eye. You know? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, mom. Yeah, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
No, he's a caring son, obviously. But, yes. Um, and that's been quite... So, I mean, how long have you been uh, sober at that point? Or clean, I guess well, it's called. Let's see. I was 34, so... And I'm 72. Oh, a long, a long time. That's quite a long time, yes. <laughs> you can stop giving you the side eye now. Um, but I understand, though, because addiction is one of those things that people sometimes do have setbacks, and they, they, you, you, never, you never know. And you bring up another good point, too. In general, the treatment of traumas or depression with chemicals that's pretty much where our society is if you look at all the problems we're having with opiates and uh, how that just got out of control and that was a pharmaceutical you know an official pharmaceutical driven product from organizations and companies um and we are definitely in a a big rut with that but um i'm very happy that you were able to get through and at the end Nature, where you found your solace, became the epicenter, if you will, of the work you create. So just talk a little bit about that. All right. I'd love to. Yeah. So this decorative art, basically, this is high-end faux finishing. But people don't call it that who are in that realm because it's not false. It's not false finishing. It's mm. real. If you go to Europe and you see all these beautiful finishes that are there, that have been there for you know hundreds and hundreds of years you know, that doesn't make it false. Right, it's right. Just, you know, so there's Italian style marbleizing, there's marquetry that's the inlaid wood that's, you know, a paint d- done with paint. And this is what I do and how I do it. And then there's layers and layers and sensitive application of paint that makes a, a room feel completely different than if it was just a plain paint. Mm. And sometimes it's so subtle. We have a technique we call emperor's new clothes because it's so delicate, but it just lets all of the color and the shape and the form of the, of the um, millwork and everything. Right. Mm. One of them is called milk and honey. And so you start with a richer kind of uh, buttery undercolor, and then you put a creamy white over the top, but you don't, you can't tell how it's done at all. Mm. It's just glowing and looking at you saying, hello, you know, I'm beautiful. You know, that's a technique you just, that you developed. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, other people may try and do. And, you know, I like to share our ideas. I mean, we have had 10 companies form from um, who training with me, Mm. which is really, I'm really pleased about that. And I also myself trained next to other decorative artists on huge projects. You, you, you can't help but notice and look and see. Right. How they're doing things. Yeah. Yeah. And we formed actually a couple of guild like approaches so that if this company is not that busy, I can take some of their people with me. You know, Mm. we, you know, this, you know, not every company is willing to do that. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying, I don't know what the point is. Well, there's no secret, okay? How you move the brush and how you see color is how you make the solution. Mm-hmm. And so I'm me and that I see color this way. So that's what my solutions will look like. Right. That doesn't make it, you know, it's, it's just that you don't have to compete, okay? Just be who you are and do your best mm-hmm. and you will succeed, right? So that's how I work that out. And I loved working. I mean, we worked, I mean, went from a tiny little things that I was doing to all of a sudden working um, in the Consul General's apartment in Paris mm-hmm. or at the Rockefeller's um, apartment, at 39 rooms, their former apartment on Park Avenue. Wow. Um, you know, I could go on and on. It's uh, amazing. Yeah. So it was really fun and hard and scary. And, you know, certainly not a thing that you need any drugs involved with you. <laughs> yeah. You're probably better off not doing drugs in that situation. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just really interesting. And 
I just I think one of the things that I want to say about following toward success uh, was that even in the spite of the most painful moments, if I would pray, which I really truly did, and look for not just an open door, but I mean a crack in a window. Is there a space? Is there mm. something that's calling me? That mm. is there something more for me there? Shall I go? And of course. The theme you'll, if readers will see, is that I'm always on the move, which I suppose is from way back in the day. You know, yeah. I'm a super motivated to move, mm-hmm. to stay out of any kind of danger. Even sitting here talking, okay, like I'm successful. I've done all these things. I'm glad I have the wall behind me because if I didn't, I would feel a little anxious. I'd be exposed. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. and this book. I mean, the vulnerability aspect was so crazy. I mean, you'd think a person would know they're going to be exposing stuff when they're writing about their life, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, great. But when it was about to come out, I had to call into my longtime therapist and go, yikes, I'm feeling so vulnerable. Yeah, because you, know? you have to revisit so many things. And, it, and But I do know from an experience of writing myself in that way, I mean, I'm not published in that regard yet, but there is the cathartic aspect to it that does, yeah. once you get past the fear, it actually is very, very therapeutic, wouldn't you say? Yes. And I want to say when I was first shopping around with the book and trying to figure out what to do, it was very nice. It had the scary stuff in the beginning. It had the perfect stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. And then I'm this woman said, where's the messy part? You must have had some, I'm like, I'm sure I have to put the messy part. Yeah, in like there. I tried to jump over that, but <laughs> yeah, did you notice? <laughs> yeah, but that's where the pulp is, right? That's where, yeah. and actually, that's where the audience connects because I think, from what I last remember reading, statistics were 25 million plus Americans, for example, are battling some form of substance abuse or addiction issues. So yeah. that's a lot of people who would really probably benefit from reading the messy parts of someone else who survived it and got through it. So, um, so ultimately I guess you did put the messy parts back in. Yes. Oh yes. I had to, but that actually took a couple of years talking about it now is okay. But when writing it and stuff, I would really have to put it away for a little while and you know, it's hard work. So um, when my son noticed this issue and brought it to my attention and I did my hard work of just staying still, I realized that I had been getting hints from people. A woman had suggested and while I was shopping for some body oil uh, at a beautiful little hippie place that I get this book, You Can Heal Your Life. Mm. And my, my answer was, you think my whole life is sick? You know, obviously I was very not well. And, yeah. Yes. And um, I stomped off. But I had also, from the corner of my eye, seen this other book that said was called Creative Visualization. So uh, a few days later, prior to ever trying to quit drugs, I went back and I bought those two books, Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life, and Shakti Gawain, Creative Visualization. And I put them on my nightstand, but that didn't make any change for me. (laughs) After laying there in bed for those three weeks, I finally started reading these books. And it was with the help of these books and the you know, desperate reality that I wasn't getting anywhere the way I was going before. And my own prayer and the support of my son that I began to use these affirmations and began to see a change. And this is when, like I said, it was fine. I found it very hard to say I am worthy. And I knew that was a a serious sign right there. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, whether I was, a, I mean, certainly when uh, prior to this as a child and all through my life, I was looking for signs and used signs and I relied upon them from nature. So in my decorative artwork and my historic restoration work, the question is, was always, you know, not what is wrong with this, but what is wanted? If you go around thinking about what is wrong, like I'm morose because of my, my fiance has died and I'm a failure because my business has failed, you will maybe get some answers, but I don't really see that as a very positive way to go. Right. So, you know, truly lift, lifting out of the cocaine use and looking at the world around and seeing a rose just sitting there looking at me saying, hello, I've been waiting for you to notice me again, right? Mm-hmm. Everything became alive. And when it comes alive and you re- begin to think about what is wanted rather than what is wrong, you just can get a really direct channel to yeah. where you want to go. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you, Elisa Stanzo Levine, a decorative artist once again, who is also an author with her new memoir, This or Something Better. And this has been a really enlightening conversation. So I appreciate you being here with me on Motivational Mondays today. Thank you so much, Corey. It was thrilling for me. Thrilling. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.